Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the next episode of Guardian Mindset Podcast. And I'm always very excited when I get to use and bring this uh, instructor and expert in uh, Dr. Paul Taylor. And over the years, I've had a lot of wonderful experience working with Paul. He's been a keynote instructor at our Use of Force Summit for many years, runs the force investigation track, has really uh, helped us with the advanced internal affairs training. And so uh, it's definitely my humble experience to bring him back for another time. Dr. Paul Taylor, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Eric. Thank you so much. It's always an honor to spend time with you and your audience. Well, you know, this this episode, what we want to focus on is we want to focus on identifying human factors or basically taking away the the myth of human factors for, for younger officers. You know, over the years, Paul and I get the opportunity to teach a lot of people, executives, command staff, you know, investigators on these concepts uh, of force investigation and human factors and memory. But realistically, this is something that you as a brand new officer deal with every day in your job. So it shouldn't be until you become a sergeant or lieutenant that you actually learn about this. So that's why I really wanted to bring Paul back and and really touch on these subjects. But let me give Paul an opportunity to uh, share with the audience his experience, his background, uh, and that what makes him awesome, which I think is his history, law enforcement, and academic. And even though he just threatened to wear Birkenstein's, uh, I'm not going to let that go. So he is an academic now, but he is a cop at heart. So he's going to have to stay focused on that. So Paul, please share with everybody a little bit of your background. Yeah, Eric, I don't think you have to ever worry about me becoming a hippie. For some reason, I've lost my hair. It's not going to be able to grow out. And Birkenstocks too. Don't look, yeah, Birkenstocks just don't look good unless you unless you've got long hair. Um, true, but, true. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I have about ten years of law enforcement experience, um, uh, and that you know, and that includes a lot of time in the training realm. So I, I became an FTO probably too early, and that's a, a trend we're seeing uh, across the country. Uh, I was a use of force instructor, um, and then I was a training manager, and that's when I started going back to school, and, and I I was kind of exposed to the concepts of, of human factors, and, and I'll tell you, as a training manager, I got mad. I was I was angry that nobody had had really described to me how uh, a human being performs under stress, how a human being makes decisions, because I was charged with preparing officers to go out and do this job to make decisions. Uh, and nobody had really talked to me about those things. And so I, I was really frustrated with that. Um, and ultimately, that led me to pursue my my PhD uh, at the University of Albany, where I, I studied police decision making. Uh, human factors and system safety in the context of of police interactions with the public, uh, and so I've done research on things like dispatch priming. Uh, I've looked at muzzle position. I've looked at transitioning between tools. Most recently, I'm working on a study now. Uh, we're looking at how police administrators use policy and outcomes to make decisions about um, uh, officer behavior and, and and things like that. And so. Uh, those, those are my areas of, of expertise, but I'll tell you, going across the country, what really strikes me when I train officers and especially officers at the line level, what's, what's really interesting to me 
uh, is that almost every class I teach, I have an officer come up to me almost to the point of tears saying, this is the first time that somebody's explained to me why I did what it is that I did during maybe a critical incident or some other incident. And, and really officers go through these experiences and, and they can't, they don't have language or an understanding for why things went the way that they did and, and why they kind of experienced things the way that they experienced them. And, and so I, I think it's really, it's really powerful when we can start to, to explain that to officers. Yeah. And I think it's really necessary and that's why I appreciate uh, all that you do. We'll, we'll give a, we'll give a little plug at the end, but I just want to also talk about the association of force investigators. You want to give a little bit of a background on, on that association that you're, you're spearheading. Sure. One of the things that we saw is that force investigators really weren't getting a lot of independent training um, and really no networking. And so oftentimes we're taking investigators who are homicide investigators, or they have a lot of experience investigating and we pull them straight across and they're doing uh, use of force investigations for law enforcement officers. And, and what we came to understand is it really is specialized. It's different. It's not like a homicide, a standard homicide investigation or a standard assault investigation. And we, there is a lot of intricacies. There are a lot of things that we need to understand in order to do this well, and we have to do it well. And so the Association of Force Investigators uh, was pulled together to really help educate the group of people who are either working as experts, investigators, or adjudicators for these cases, um, and to provide a networking platform for them. Uh, and so we're really excited about, about it. Yeah. And like I said, I first met Dr. Paul Taylor as a student for science, um, had done the five-day class, and then went to the advanced specialist class. And Dr. Taylor was basically the academic running the class. Um, and so uh, he's now under an NDA that he can't talk about my scores. Uh, but that's the, that's the good part. <laughs> um, it's kind of out of order, Paul, but this is, it made me think a little bit about you mentioned some of the studies you'd been involved in, and we'll get into, you know, human factors and what they are, because that's really the purpose of this podcast. But the two that really jump out is the priming study you did in the analysis of how priming affects officers' response to situations. And then definitely after the Kim Potter trial and, and the trend, the weapon transition, the, the, you know, what we are now calling the criminalization of human error is that weapon transition application. So can you start with this a little bit about the priming study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so th that study, and that study really started long before I went into academics. I was working as a trainer, uh, running uh, officers through a simulator. And, and so a simulator is kind of unique because officers are getting the exact same stimulus every single time. They're going through and they're seeing the exact same scenario. Well, one of the things I, I found as a trainer is that by giving them different information at the beginning. So kind of changing what it was that I told them at the beginning, I could dramatically change the outcome and the performance of the officers going through the scenario. Now the officers all day long are gonna tell you the reason they made the decision that they made was based on the behavior that they saw. So for instance, the subject rapidly pulled an object from, from his waistband. And so I, I made a decision based on that. But the fact of the matter is that information seemed to be having an impact and so when I, when I started my, my research as, as a new academic, that was one of the first studies that I did. And, and, and basically it was a large study, over 300 officers. 
we brought them in and we gave them one of three uh, different dispatches. Um, and basically, one was kind of neutral. One uh, indicated the person was armed and one indicated the person was talking on a cell phone. And then we presented them one of two scenarios in a simulator, a person standing there that matched the description of the subject from the call, either produced a gun or in the second scenario, these are randomly assigned, produced a cell phone. Uh, and we watched how officers responded and it was dramatic. The error rate for the cell phone increased 100%. It went from 30% to over 64% shooting the person with the cell phone when the information changed. And what was so interesting about that is none of the officers in the study identified the information as an important factor in their decision-making. And so from an investigative standpoint, it's, well, from two different standpoints, from a report writing standpoint, it's so important that officers are capturing everything that went up to that decision point for them, even if they don't think it's necessarily important because there, you know, we suffer from outcome bias too as officers. And when we engage in a situation, we're looking at the outcome and we're looking at the path that got us to that outcome. Uh, and we're not thinking broadly. But when we're writing that report, it's so important that we capture all of the circumstances that led up to that, the decision processes that led up to that final decision, because oftentimes it's critical to understanding the reasonableness of that decision making later on. And then from an investigative standpoint, it's really important that we're capturing that. Oftentimes we kind of, uh, we capture the story. We can see that path that led straight to the outcome as well. And we're not capturing the information uh, around that that's so critical to the decision-making process and can be influential. Yeah. I mean, the couple of things just to make it into operation is oftentimes we tell officers, listen, we want to know how you learned of this incident. Were you dispatched? Was it a wave down? Um, were you were you dispatched to what was the what was the action that you were dispatched to? Because I mean, uh, I'm going to put the layman spin on it, but it, but dispatch can improperly prime a, an officer to a situation. Is that is that kind of your finding? Well, that's I mean that's a that's part. Of it it goes both ways, right? So if you have the it's kind of this the the military uh, intelligence dilemma, right? If you have the correct <laughs> intelligence, right. That you, and you act on that intelligence, it can be very beneficial. On the other hand, if the intelligence is misleading, and and I, I've expanded it, dispatch priming has kind of become a thing, but really what we're talking about is any pre-event information that we're basing decisions on. And oftentimes that's at a subconscious level, right? We're not even necessarily aware that we carry that with us into uh, informing what it is, how we interpret, you know, what's happening in front of us, but we do. And it, when that information doesn't align and we get behavior that, that indicates maybe a person is armed or, or it, it can lead to really bad outcomes and, and that dramatically increases the likelihood for an officer to make a mistake. Yeah, that's I can listen to you talk about this stuff forever. Uh, uh, so let's talk about the weapon transition. What was the point of focus on your weapon transition study? Yeah, so we know based on research in other realms, right, medicine and aviation, that that tools and tasks can have an impact uh, on outcomes. Uh, and, and really, when when uh, we have a tool, um, uh, and officers are making decisions around that tool, and especially when we're we're facing situations where we have no attentional resources to give to our tools, right? And we so we know officers experience tunnel vision. And we know officers experience auditory exclusion. 
Well, both of those things mean that there's absolute attentional capture. That means that an officer's attention is entirely taken up with what's happening in front of them. And so they don't have attentional resources to give to their tools. They, they just don't. I mean, I've, I can cite multiple cases that I've looked at personally where an officer has no memory of a gun going off in their hand, you know, an explosion happening in their hand. That means they had no attentional resources for that tool and weren't even able to capture that loud noise and the explosion of the gun going off in their hand. If they don't have the attention for that, really, you know, the tools that they use and the tactics that we prepare officers to use those tools are critically important. And so my big thing is let's look at the data. Let's look at the right. data that we have. And so for uh, things like electronic control devices, right? We know that the average deployment distance right now is around five feet, seven to five feet, right? Really close. We know that um, we know that that it doesn't have uh, uh, the effectiveness rate that we see in laboratories. We know that when we, that effectiveness rate is somewhere based on the research uh, between 50 and, and 80% in the field. So if we just take the middle of that from the research, we'll say 65% effectiveness rate. And then my taser transition study, where I looked at transitioning between tools uh, for a known target and officers knew what they were supposed to do. So when they got a stimulus, they were supposed to immediately transition from either their firearm to their taser or their taser to their firearm. We found that the time it took for them to transition from their taser to their firearm on average was two and a half seconds. Going the other way, 4.7 seconds. So that's a significant period. And putting it back. So if you have your gun out and you are yep. going to transition to a taser, that's 4.7 seconds. Wow. So that's a long period of time. And so if we take that together, so if we say the average deployment distance is seven feet, five to seven feet, that uh, we have a 65% efficacy rate and it's going to take us two and a half seconds to transition to another tool that should be impacting how we use the tool and the tactics we design around that tool um, and, and, and how we train it. Um, and currently, I don't think we're, we're taking those types of things into account and it's critically important that we do. Now, I just know because uh, being a, a, an old guy officer, what they call us reserve guys, right? Is every once in a while some, well, every three or five years, somebody needs a new gun so they get a new gun and they give me a holster that I can't get the gun out of because I, I haven't built those processes in yet to do that. One of the things that I noticed in the Kim Potter and, and whether or not you've seen this in a general application is that that transition from, from handgun to taser or taser back to handgun, do you see that being trained at a level in which to give you that factors application? No, not 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 at all. I mean, the, I I think so. There there are multiple things to that. First, in this study, <clears throat> a large metropolitan agency and some smaller surrounding agencies, large sample size. Seventy percent of the officers had never done any transition training at all. Well, when we are doing transition training, it's often in the form of a scenario, um, and and we're running one or two scenarios. That doesn't that doesn't get you there, um, and 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 I think we need to look at the tools too. And this is true for multiple tools. You know, it's not just it's not just taser. It's not just uh, you know beanbag shotguns. It's it's all of our tools and how we're implementing them. And oftentimes we're not integrating them into the larger complex decision processes that we have to engage in. 
we're training them in silos. And this is true of de-escalation as well, right? So we we do de-escalation training we do, or we do taser training or we do uh, something else and we do it independent of all other decision processes. And somehow our expectation is that all of these things will come together and form a good outcome when an officer has to make decisions with no attentional resources in, in the dynamic uh, situations that they encounter out on the street. That's just not going to happen all the time. Um, and, and again, this is particularly true when officers have zero attentional resources to devote to those decision processes. Yeah, we I, sometimes I think we, we think about it from a rational standpoint. We say, we'd love an officer to say this or do this. Well, the example that I use is driving, right? So if you're driving along, right. I can have a conversation with somebody right beside me. No problem. I can talk to them. We can talk all day long. But what happens if I suddenly have to take evasive action because something bad is about to happen in front of me? Can I continue to carry on that conversation? No, of course not. The conversation not. conversation stops. I have to take evasive action. So we're very practiced at talking. We're very practiced at driving. And yet we can't do those two things at the same time. How many of us have designed tactics or training in which our expectation is that in a life-threatening circumstance, we have officers saying articulate things or doing specific things or multiple things at the same time. It's just not going, it's not going to happen when an officer's attentional resources are entirely taken up with what's happening in front of them. And so what, what I'm advocating for when we look at this is really designing training, designing tactics that take the human being into account, that take the fact that once our attentional resources are taken up, we're going to have very little to give to our tools or our tactics at that point. Yeah. And as you can see, everybody, uh, I mean, I, I've had the wonderful opportunity to take many of Dr. Taylor's classes and you can just go down a rabbit hole on a lot of these aspects, which is just completely fascinating. So I want to, but this is, I think is a great transition to get into human factors and use of force investigation. And, and, and Paul, what is the, what is the purpose under a human factors application of a use of force investigation? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it's really understanding how people make decisions under these types of circumstances. Um, and if we're if we're making assessments of reasonableness, right? If we're making assessments about what an officer should have been doing under those circumstances, I, I really think it's important that we we take into account what a person is capable of doing under those circumstances. And I think that's really where human factors comes comes into play. And and for instance, we as you know, we've looked at a lot of these cases, time is a critical aspect in these cases. And it takes time to make decisions. It takes time to make a decision about or to to see a stimulus, to to decide what that stimulus is, and then to make a decision about how to respond to that and carry out that action. Uh, it takes time to carry out that task. So if I'm pulling a trigger, that has that has actual time frames to it that that are that are very consistent when we start looking at research about an officer pulling the trigger as fast as possible. And then it's going to take time for an officer to stop as well during a dynamic circumstance. And there's dynamic movement during that. And so uh, oftentimes that leads to situations that are difficult to explain. If we were just to take this and say from a rational decision point, here's when an officer should have started or, or if an officer should have started, and this is when an officer should have stopped, uh, time can play and decision-making can play a huge role in that. And also the influence of, of say, pre-event information on how we interpret 
behavior and stimulus going into a call. And these things are really, really critical. How do people make decisions about what a person is doing and what that what that behavior or what that stimulus actually means? And so human factors can help us understand those things. Now, and this is this is not just a law enforcement thing, right? This is is it across the board anywhere there's a human, right? Uh, absolutely, and it's been critical to to uh, medicine, aviation, uh, transportation, oil and gas, uh, and really those professions didn't take strong advances forward until we started applying human factors concepts to those to those professions. We're really late in the game at being a high risk profession in applying these factors to law enforcement. Uh, it's important from the investigative standpoint. I would argue it's even more important from the training standpoint and understanding what an officer is capable of and what we should be training them to do. And so I, I call it the profession that science forgot. We, we really, yeah. we have, I, I like to, as you know, when I, when I, at the very basic level, want investigators to pay attention to you, I use the, the, the movie Sully and Captain Sullenberger who landed the, the, the airplane on the Hudson river. And my favorite line from that saying is if you want to find human error, you have to make it human. A hundred percent. And when we have an outcome that we don't understand, it's really easy to say, well, the problem is the last person that touched it. Right. Um, and, and you can look at it from that perspective, but in nursing, right. So if we have an, a, an overdose death, because a nurse made a mistake uh, with medication, right? We can always blame the nurse for that. And we can say the nurse is the problem. She wasn't paying enough attention and there was an overdose. Well, if we've got two medication bottles that are labeled almost identically and we keep them in a medicine cabinet right next to each other, overdose deaths aren't going to happen all the time. But if, if it's very similar, people in similar situations with similar training experience are going to respond in similar ways. And so we're going to get similar outcomes across time and people. We're going to see that uh, multiple times. And so uh, if we want to kind of fix the issues that we see, that's another aspect of understanding the human factors involved in in these cases. Um, and and really, it's one of the it's one of the detriments to criminalizing error. Uh Error by its nature is unintended. A person isn't intending to do these things. Uh, and so when we look at it, if we want to improve outcomes, we've got to understand that we're going to keep seeing them unless we address the systemic issues that caused it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've never asked you this question, so I'm actually throwing this one right out to you. But I, I noticed that there's almost a bias in the world from judges from attorneys, from even sometimes police executives, when you start to talk about the human factors, the decision-making, the accountability aspect, the reaction time, the speed time, people seem to, uh, you know, say it's just an excuse. It's an excuse for why an officer didn't do something they were supposed to be. Have you, have you seen that? Yeah, I, I have, especially, so yes, on all the, on all fronts, but especially around the term human error, right? So when when we use that term, uh, officers don't like it. They say, aren't you being hard on officers when you say they're making an error during these decisions? Uh, and and then you go to the other side and you say, well, you get activists or you get, get people who are big on police reform and they'll say, well, 
are, aren't you being too easy on the officers by using that term? Is there an intentionalness about it? Uh, but but I would argue it's it's important from a learning standpoint because what we know about error is that you know again people with similar training experience are going to continue to make those the same type of error under the same type of circumstances. And unless we address address it, unless we change some aspect of it, we're going to con- continue to see it. Um, but uh, I, but yes, I have seen that. Um, and, and there seems to be a reluctance. I get it a lot from judges. Yeah, hundred percent. There's a reluctance. Judges don't want to hear it. You're, you're, absolutely, it. Right. you're absolutely right. And and we're actually seeing criminalization of human error in other sectors as well. It's happening in nursing, right? They're they're going after nurses criminally for making for making errors. Um, and, and it's unfortunate because what it does is it, it really does keep us from learning from from what has occurred. As a profession, it keeps us from improving um, and it keeps us from getting better. On, on the legal side, I, I would argue that we're not fully accounting for reasonableness unless we understand uh, whether or not it was reasonable for a person to make an error under these circumstances. If the officer with similar experience would make the same error or is likely to make the same error in in my opinion, that should go into the assessment of reasonableness. You know, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, so in, in training, I often hear you say the words in your in your in our advanced IA class, you say, and I am paying attention, you say, we need to understand decision making. And so I guess that's at multiple different levels. But but in the, the officers listening to this, what do they need to understand about decision making? Yeah. So to understand decision-making, and I'll start with the first part of that question. I, I think it's so important that we're getting the officer's unobstructed narrative of what what occurred during that event. And whether that's a written report or whether that's the officer's statement after, after a high-level case, um, it's so important to get that unobstructed, uninterrupted narrative of the officer's perspective uh, and decision-making. And, and, and that really shouldn't be tainted by anything else, including the investigator's questions, right? So there's a time for questions, but getting that unobstructed narrative is so critical to understanding that officer's decision-making. And then from the officer's perspective, just understanding how important it is for you to give that perspective. Across the country, there are a lot of jurisdictions where either officers are having to give statements in response to questions and so it's a it's a peppering of questions and officers are simply giving responses or they're not giving any statement at all. And then the problem with not giving a statement at all is that it allows anybody and everybody to make assumptions based purely on what they see in behavior, right? And, and you can make any assumption you want based on that. You could make up any narrative that you want based on that. And so really the only the only place that we can truly understand decision-making and understand what is inside the officer's head and why they're making the decisions that they made, what they were, what was important to them, what they were perceiving is if that officer gives their statement. So that that's the first part of it. And and then going, going back and understanding from a decision-making standpoint, and this is important for officers, that when we walk into a call, we are bringing pre-event information with us. And so where we can slow things down and take in more inform- information the better our decision-making process is. We know that more time almost always equals better decision-making and, and not more time in decision-making, not processing, but the more exposure we have to the problem environment, the more exposure we have to the actual stimulus, the better our decision-making process typically is. 
Um, and so again, where we can slow things down from a tactical standpoint, we can improve that. We can improve that decision-making process. The other thing is, I think we, as officers, we think we have a lot more control over the decision-making process than we do. And most of our decisions take place at a, at a subconscious level. Most of our decisions are shortcut decision-making. So we call it heuristic decision-making. Uh, and it's, it's based on patterns uh, that we observe in our environment. And so those are, those are kind of the, the, the two things uh, I, I would say. So where we can slow things down from a tactical standpoint, the better off, the better off that we are. So just to, to kind of, because we're going to get into that PhD level stuff for a second <laughs> with those fancy words, but, but if you were, if an officer came up to you and said, Dr. Taylor, you know, I'm a patrol officer, a couple of years on the job. What do I need to know about human factors and where should I, where should I be focusing my knowledge base on human factors? Well, I, I think one thing is important is to understand that things take time. Right. So from a, from an officer level, it's important to understand that things take time. It takes time for you to recognize the stimulus in your environment and respond to it. We talk about action versus reaction in law enforcement. That's a very real thing. We, uh, we build up in our head that we can respond much faster than we can. And so building into your, into your tactics, additional time movement saves lives and we don't train movement nearly enough. Um, so oftentimes, uh, we think in our head, for instance, that if I'm standing at the side of a car and somebody, uh, on a traffic stop and somebody produces a weapon inside that I could draw to that threat and stop the threat or address the threat. Well, the fact of the matter is it's going to take you at least two seconds to get out of your holster and address that threat. And even if you're already out, it's going to take you at least half a second, even if you're pointing directly at the person and making a decision about what a person is producing out of their pocket or from a center console, it's going to take you at least half a second to make that decision. And in the meantime, multiple rounds are going to be coming at you. And so movement should be our first priority from a defensive uh, handgun fighting uh, um, uh, type situation. And that's always the situation that patrol officers will find themselves in. And so we should be prioritizing movement first in both our training and in our thought process for how to respond to a spontaneous threat. That doesn't mean you're not drawing at the same time and responding, but that should be important. We should also when understand- When you say, let me interrupt you for a second, Bob. When you say movement, basically you're saying getting off the dime, not not staying still in that application? Not staying still and 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 pre-thinking that, right? So we, oftentimes we'll see retreating directly into traffic, right? And, and that just is a spontaneous uh, response to the threat. Thinking through the fact that I'm heading straight back to the mitigation zone of my traffic stop as I'm drawing and starting return is critically important and not something that's stressed nearly enough in training or in our thought processes beforehand. So time is a big is a big deal, and we should be engineering some cushion into our into our responses so that so that we have time uh, to respond where we can. And movement is a, is a big important piece of that. The other thing to realize is that you won't have attentional resources. You will not have potential resources to devote to what's happening during a spontaneous threat. Um, and so you have to train your your tools and your tactics to the point of automaticity uh, so that you're not having to pay attention to them um, and, and thinking through the tools on, on, on that account. And then finally, when you're involved in a use of force encounter, it it's, it's giving that narrative report that captures all of the decision-making processes that lead up to it. More and more, I'm seeing lower level uses of force 
being adjudicated at a higher and higher level. Um, and so it's critical that officers are really putting into even their written use of force reports for lower levels, for lower level uses of force, um, their decision-making process, their perspective, what they were seeing. Um, and, and really I'm, I'm advocating that, that officers aren't watching video prior to even writing lower level uses of force. Now you can watch it immediately after and immediately put in after watching the video, this is what I saw. But we need to understand your perspective in the moment, not what you've come to understand after the fact, because that perspective in the moment is what's going to be judged. And if you're writing that you're aware of all of these other global things after you watch your your video uh, along the way, you're, you're, you may lo no longer be justified in using the level of force that you did. And so I think it's critically important that you're writing it from your perspective, what you were able to to perceive what was important to you, what you were feeling. I'm not talking about saying, I feared for my life. I'm talking about what you were actually feeling in that moment, what you were seeing, what was in, what what was important to you, what behavior was important to you and why it was important to you. Not just because it was based on your training and experience. If you write that in there, you need to tell me what training and what experience was, uh, was uh, coming to mind in that moment um, and, and really capturing the detail of that decision-making process. All right, so let's give a little bit to the force investigators or those that are working on their force investigators. Uh, in your training, you focus on what's called what you call error traps. Uh, that there are three investigative error traps. Um, can you spend a little time and talk about those and the concept of how they affect uh, a force investigation? Maybe something that even a command staff should should pay attention to when they're deciding. Uh, discipline or outcomes. Yeah, one of the things that uh, really became aware of once I started getting into research was the idea that as a researcher, we're biased, and as an investigator, we're biased. We can't help that. We bring with us um, our training, our experience, our understanding of the world, and that bias is the way that we look at everything. It can't be helped. And there's a lot of great studies on researchers and how biased researchers are. And, and really the scientific method is designed to reduce as much as possible the level of bias that a researcher brings to their research process. Um, and so there are a couple, what I call advantages, disadvantages that an investigator brings to every case. The first disadvantage is that we know the outcome and we can't unknow the outcome. And so that everything that we look at is through the light of the outcome. And there's probably no stronger human bias than outcome bias. The second disadvantage that we have is our training and our experience, right? That's what gets us a seat at the table. It's why we're good at our job and, and why we get hired to do these pro to do these investigations. But the problem is that's our lens. And when we look at it, oftentimes we say, that doesn't look good to me. That's our initial gut instinct. And we start investigating from that perspective, right? And so this is where these three investigative air traps come in. So outcome bias is impacting us. And then uh, our training and experience is the lens through which we're looking at things. And that causes us to engage in what I call, what we call counterfactual reasoning. And counterfactual reasoning is we look at a case and we start saying, if only the officer had done this, then it, this never would have happened. The the outcome never would have happened. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, it's, it's really problematic. So if 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 I engage in counterfactual reasoning 
in say a case study that I was trying to publish in a peer review journal, it wouldn't get published, right? They'd say, this is, this is biased. Uh, you're engaging in, you know, basically fantasy. You're, you're talking about something that did not happen. Um, and so, uh, counterfactual reasoning uh, is really is, is, is problematic. Um, and the truth of the matter is we could always do it there, no matter what use of force case it was, no matter how good the use of force case looked, we could always say if the officer had just done this instead of that, this never would have happened. And in some states, we've actually written counterfactual reasoning as an as assessment criteria for our use, use of force cases. And so it's, it's, it's really problematic, but it's, it biases the investigation. The second is, is normative reasoning. And normative reasoning is basically where we're putting our own values uh, on officer behavior. And, and you'll, you notice it in use of force reporting when we say things like an officer failed to do this or an officer failed to do that uh, um, or, um, yeah. And uh, normative reasoning uh, is is problematic, is problematic as well. Mechanistic reasoning is the idea that basically uh, process is related to outcome. Uh, and, and that's not always the case. Sometimes you get a bad outcome from bad process, certainly. But you can also get a bad outcome from perfectly good process. Mechanistic reasoning is the idea if we have a bad outcome, it must have been a bad process to get us there. Uh, and that's that's just not not true. The example that I use with that is driving. Most of us do not have the best process for driving, uh, but we still get great we still get great outcomes most of the time. At the same time, you could have perfect process, right? You could go around and inspect your vehicle, check your tire pressure, make sure you're 10 and two, all your mirrors are adjusted. You could drive perfectly safe within the speed limit, follow all of the laws, and we could still have a catastrophic failure, right? So outcome, is not a reliable measure for process. And so we really have to be careful that we don't fall into these traps. What we should be doing is looking at these cases and understanding the officer's decision-making the best that we can. Really, as investigators, we should not be the adjudicators of the case. And if you you have a process in which you're being asked to adjudicate the case, in other words, you're, you're being asked to form an opinion about whether or not something was reasonable, that's problematic because you're investigating towards that opinion. As investigators, we should be as much as possible neutral reporters of the facts and pass that up for somebody else to make the assessments uh, about reasonableness or or to adjudicate the case. All of those things I strongly believe in with you. You just make it sound so much better. I, I don't know about that, brother. <laughs> uh, one last topic as we wrap this up and in in this aspect and this can be a whole podcast in and of itself and it's really you know as somebody who's on the legal side but just knows enough to be dangerous on the on the human factor side the aspects of memory and why understanding memory is important to evaluating use of force in incidents um you know all of the force science training all of your training focuses on memory um, why is understanding memory so important to evaluating use of force incidents? Well, and really, I look at memory as as evidence and probably the most important evidence in a use of force case because we're not just a, a, we know what happened. We know that and an officer isn't denying the fact that they use force most of the time, right? They're they're coming forward and they're either providing a statement, or they've written a statement that says, I used force. Right. 
So, so really, what is it that we're assessing? We're assessing reasonableness. And so we're assessing decision-making. And really the only way we can assess decision-making is to understand the officer's perspective and what the officer, uh, why the officer made the decisions that the officer did. And so understanding memory and what memory is, is critical. And, and you know, we've gotten pretty good at, at not messing up crime scenes, right? So we, we we're really careful about how, how we control access to a crime scene. We're really careful about how we collect evidence. You know, we're not just going to go around and kick a shell casing and say it looks better over there or, or okay. run our fingers across a non-porse. We're not going to do any of that stuff, right? Because we understand that if we do, we're tainting the evidence. But we don't treat memory the same way. Oftentimes, we'll, we'll show an officer video or we'll ask pointed questions uh, all along the way. Um, and, and what we're doing is we're actually changing that officer's memory. There's a couple of things that that we should know about memory. What forgetting starts immediately, and two, contamination starts immediately. And there's nothing we can do about that. If I took an officer and locked them into an isolation booth, they would still be contaminating their memory as they try and make sense of what happened, as they recall what happened over and over again and replay it in their head, as they start to organize that memory around and try to make rational sense of the complexity that they just experienced, uh, that memory is being contaminated. The problem is, is that our investigative processes often further contaminate that memory. There are steps that we can take. And one of the best steps that we can take is as soon as possible, and by as possible, I mean collecting at the best time possible. So when the officer is in the best shape to give that statement, getting that unobstructive narrative from the officer about what occurred has a couple of really beneficial effects. First, right. It inoculates against forgetting. And second, it inoculates against contamination. And so we're going to get a better statement. And that statement uh, is going to, uh, that officer is going to be able to repeat that statement more accurately if we're not interjecting, interrupting, um, or contaminating that memory with outside evidence. Um, and, and then the other side to this is that statement is a very separate piece of evidence than, say, your video evidence. It's not going to reflect the video evidence. It's not going to reflect the objective facts of the case, but it's a critical factor to understanding the officer's perspective. Uh, and, and, and so the gaps in the memory, the inconsistencies with other aspects of the case are critical pieces of human factors evidence about the officer's decision-making process, their state of mind, what they were focused on, what was important to them what they weren't focused on and where it didn't capture uh, information. All of these things are critical pieces of evidence. If we're trying to get this holistic statement that covers every aspect of the event to tell us what happened, we miss all of that. We contaminate that. Uh, and really we destroy what I consider the most important piece of evidence in use of force cases. And I think in that this is what is contaminated the most. Uh, the, the, they, there's too many ways that we still allow it to be contaminated. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, we, we, we really destroy it. And sometimes officers do it themselves inadvertently. They, they think that they're giving a similar statement to how they've always written reports. And, and the fact of the matter is it's, it's a very different type of statement. Uh, and, and we don't train it. We don't teach officers how to do it. And really there's never a time in our lives where we tell stories the way that and to the level of detail that we need for a use of force uh, a report or statement. Um, we don't write reports that way. 
Um, and so really there's no preparation for it prior to that. And, and we really should be doing that when, whenever possible. I, I recommend doing it during scenario-based training. You don't have to do it yeah, for every officer. Too. Sit one officer down in front of everybody and, and help them work through the process of giving their statement so that everybody sees, listen, it's going to be inconsistent, but it's going to be what was important to you or what you were paying attention to in the moment. Uh, Dr. Taylor, it's awesome as always. Uh, your knowledge is uh, is so important to the proper mechanism of teaching everybody from those documenting force to those investigating force, that those deciding whether or not the force was reasonable or not. Uh, and uh, I think you and I both agree that we have a long way to go to make this a, the science where it belongs. But uh, the good thing is I'm very happy that I have someone like you in our corner to get this done because you will get it done. Uh, I appreciate you, Eric. Thank you for get, getting the word out there. It's always an honor to talk with you and your audience. Um, and, and just let me take a minute to thank all of them for the work that they're doing out there. Um, it's, it's tough work. Sometimes as a public, we're not grateful enough for what it is that you do. And so on behalf of me and my family, thank you, thank you for your sacrifices and thank you for the work that you're doing. Don't hesitate to reach out if, if Eric or I can be of assistance. Yeah, absolutely. Ditto, ditto, and ditto. All right, sir, be well, and let me end this. Help those who need your help. Protect those who need your protection. And most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center, you can find an extensive library of articles, webinars, and online training. Listen, if you find the podcast informative, I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.